Well, good morning, Grace family. I am not in the building this morning. Uh, as may have been mentioned earlier, we had some symptoms show up in our home that we are hopeful uh, only indicate something like a cold or strep throat or some other kind of good news that would only be good news in a season like this. A uh, season that is uh, scary. Um, seems like the numbers keep going up and uh, there is a lot of fear, a lot of different kinds of fear. And there is a right kind of fear, uh, the kind of fear that expresses itself in caution, appropriate caution, especially on behalf of others. And we want to continue to commend that kind of fear. Uh, we also know that there are other kinds of fear that are not healthy. John the Apostle actually describes those kinds of fear and, and the remedy to them in next Sunday's passage. This is a passage that John Mawson, our John, has agreed to preach next Sunday. And the Apostle John refers to that kind of fear in verse 18 of 1 John 4 when he says, There is no fear in love. He says what gets rid of that kind of fear. But perfect love casts out fear. So if we we want to be able to make good distinctions between uh, the kind of fear, caution, that, that really does love other people and the kind of fear that keeps us from loving other people. Somehow, we need to find this kind of perfect love that casts out that kind of fear. And we actually see that described in this morning's passage in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read it first. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. John calls us, calls his readers, including us by extension, uh, to love one another. And he includes himself in that call. There's a big call, we could say a big exhortation this morning, to love one another. It, it's built into who we are as children of God. This is, as we're going to see, who God is, and we've seen that we've been called into his family. And so it just makes all the sense in the world that we would share this essential nature of God, especially in the way that we view and treat one another. John, as we've seen, writes with uh, with a marvelously woven poetic style. And 
when John wrote, he, he wrote to a culture of people that were much more used to learning by hearing than we're used to learning by hearing. Some of us naturally learn by hearing. Some of us learn by seeing or by doing. But when John wrote, he wrote to a culture that would have been much more accustomed to auditory learning. We tend to be more visual. So one of the things that I want to try to do this morning, uh, which I also tried to do last week, is to give us a visual picture of the impression that I think John intended for his readers to get by hearing his letter read. And I, I hope that this is, is helpful for you this morning. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to display the text as I think John intended for it to be structured in people's minds as they listen to his letter being read in their congregation. And he starts simply with this, uh, what we can call an exhortation to love one another. It really frames verses 7 through 11. We see it in verse 7. We see it in verse 11. This call to love one another. And as we listen to what John has said to his readers, we can join him in saying we have every reason to join our Father in doing this, in doing this for one another, loving one another. In one sense, that's obvious, right? We, who would listen to John say, let's love one another and say, well, I don't think that's a good idea. We wouldn't do that in principle. And at the same time, we see in practice that uh, we, we so often don't live up consistently to our principles. And so we have to be reminded and so John does that. He does it over and over again. And here he frames this whole section with this call. Let's love one another. We need that reminder. We need more than that reminder. So John fills that out. He's, he's going to fill out what we could call that exhortation with an explanation of it in the second half of verse 7 through verse 8. And then he's going to give us an expression of what he explains, the way that God expresses his love in verses 9 and 10. And then he's going to call us to an extension of that love, an extension to one another and an extension outward to show what the love of God is like by the way that it flows through us to one another. So we're going to see that exhortation, and you see those two things bound together in verses 7 and 11. And then in between them, we begin to see this explanation. God, John has told his readers, Beloved, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And God has loved us in deed and in truth. Our love flows from the love that comes from God, from the love that characterizes the heart of God. And so John starts not with us, because that's not where love comes from, but from God. And he says in the second half of verse 8 that God is love. Now, that could mean so many different kinds of things, many of which are not true at all, like, for instance, that love is God. That's that's not true at all. We, we, we know that, I hope. Uh, it's not true that love is God. 
In fact, in one sense, the opposite is true. There would be no such thing as love if it weren't for God. That, that statement that God is love is in many ways clarified in the first statement, the first statement that you see in green on your screen there, that love is from God. The, the, the very reason that love exists in the universe is not simply because God models it for us, but because of who God is. Love exists because God exists and because of what his heart is like. This huge sweeping statement that God is love is similar in some ways to what John has said in chapter 1 verse 5 when he said that God is light. If you were able to look at the character of God visibly, you would see no dark spots. God is the standard and definition of everything that's good. He's perfectly consistent with himself. You look at his character, you see perfect light. And, and the same thing is true of love. If you want to know what love is, then you look at the heart of God. His heart flows outward. And, and as it flows outward, from his own abundance, it draws people in. That's, that's what the heart of God does. That's one description of what it means that God is love. His, his heart always flows outward to draw people in. Not to meet a need in himself, as if he's lonely. In fact, it's, it's really the, the opposite of that. God is the wellspring of communion, of fellowship. We could even say of friendship. And the, the, the love in the heart of God constantly longs to draw his creatures into that communion. We, we see something of that in the words of Jesus himself, in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says in John 17, 5, he, he's, he's getting ready to return to the Father. And, and, and he says to the Father in John 17, 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here's this amazing, mysterious picture of the Father and the Son eternally existing together, having glory together, having something that's expressed only in the tiniest shard in human friendship. When people are able to sit together and say, "We're," I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm really glad that you're here, not simply to accomplish something, something together, but because I delight in you. And the Father and the Son, in verse 5, delight in one another. And Jesus is saying to the Father, restore me to that place where we experience that together. And then in John 17, 24, Jesus says, I want my followers to experience the same thing. He's praying for his disciples, and he says in verse 20 that who he's praying for includes 
us, those of us who believe in him. And he says in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they, we, also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be drawn into the communion between himself and the Father. When, when you see what's in the spring, when you see what God's love is really like, when you see what's in the spring, you, you'll know what's going to be in the stream as well. And so it, it simply makes all the sense in the world when John says that, that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anybody who's not part of that stream, anybody who doesn't love, doesn't know God, hasn't been connected to that spring. How, how does God give himself? How did he pour himself out in order to draw others in? The general description is good, powerful in itself. And at the same time, God did not love us in word only, but in deed and in truth. And so we see the expression of that deed and truth of God's love in verses 9 and 10, where God's love for us is actually expressed. These verses are very similar to one another. Uh, you may you may see that on your screen. I think as 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 some of the colors show up, uh, you'll see that that these these verses are in many ways a repetition of one another. There's more of John's poetic emphasis here. He wants to leave an impression in his readers, so he does that in verses nine and ten by starting with a description of where we see God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. In this is love, verse 10. We see this, we, we see the love of God in the fact that God sent his only son into the world. We see that in verse 10 as well, that he sent his son. The kind of love that flows straight from God's heart that gets us closest to knowing who he is, is seen in what he has done for us in Christ. And what he's done is that he has sent his only son into the world. We see that described in John 1, where, where John talks about the true light. This is John 1, 9, the true light which enlightens everyone, that's the Son, Jesus, was coming into the world. What world was that? Well, it was the world that belonged to Jesus by rights, and it was the world that was ours because we had stolen it and broken it. And so he came into the world, John 1.10, the world that was made through him and the world that did not know him. He came to his own, John says, that, that which belonged to him by rights. And those who were his own did not receive him. And that's the world that Jesus 
came into. It's the world that he came into at great cost to himself in order to save us out of it. And that's exactly how he describes what he did for his disciples as, as, he's, as he's talking to them in John 15, 19. He says, I chose you out of the world. And he didn't do that by airdropping a map out of the world for them. Here, here's how you do it. Uh, hope that you're able to get out and find me where I am. That's not how he did it. He, he drew near. He laid aside his glory. He, he came into the world, the world that was our world because we had stolen it and broken it, in order to rescue us out of it. And that's exactly what John says when he describes in, in two different ways the purpose for which the Son came into the world, that we might live through him. Here we were, trapped in death, trapped in fear, and the Son came into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world to restore life for us, to give us life. The only way that he could do that was by dealing with our sin. The description of him giving us life through him is, is expanded in verse 10, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus had to come into the world. He had to come into the world as God and as man, not only to give us an example, not only to bring us physical healing, though he, he did those things. He had to come into the world in order to be the only sufficient sacrifice and payment for everything that our sins deserved. He came to give us life by being the propitiation for our sins. John wants to drive home the point that this kind of love could not have originated from us. So even in these two verses where he repeats that here's where we see love, we see it in God sending his only son. We see it in God sending his son that we might live through him by his being the propitiation for our sins. In this little bridge in verse 10, by the way, he says, we see love not in the fact that we have loved God, but in the fact that he loved us. He is the spring. It had to come from him. And it had to come from him by sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is why loving one another is such a distinctive marker. Such a distinctive marker of who we are. As Jesus said to his disciples in that familiar passage in John 13, Verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not only that you would have love 
not only that you would love others, but in a very specific way that you would love one another. What's the point? The point is that when we love one another, one another, we give concrete, direct expression to the reality of what Jesus has done for us by coming as a propitiation for our sins. It gives a tangible demonstration of the fact that not only my sins and not only your sins, but our sins have been paid for and removed. So when you receive me as a sinner, somebody who still troubles your life with my sin, when you do that as somebody who still troubles people's lives with your sin, when one sinner loves and welcomes and embraces another sinner in full view of that sinner's sins, it demands an explanation. It, it cannot simply be explained away by general human niceness. Something had to happen to make an ongoing, open relationship possible. Only one thing. The one thing that John keeps bringing us back to, the same thing that he keeps urging his readers to hold on to, the only thing that could have brought us as sinners into an ongoing, open relationship with God himself. And that is Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. When, when we love one another, we hold out to one another and to the watching world the life that Jesus offers, the life that John longs for his readers to hear about and to find by trusting in the name of Jesus. And so John wants his readers to extend that expression, that explanation of God's love. And we see that in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible to the world. And yet there is a way for us to demonstrate him. There's a way for us to... There's a way for God to live visibly in us before the world. The world hasn't seen God as he is. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, what does it mean that his love is perfected in us? Does it mean that we love perfectly? Not, not in this life. It does mean that we love actually. And when we do, when the love that flows from the spring of God's heart, because Jesus has brought us into it, when that, when that becomes a stream that flows through us to one another, God's love finds its intended purpose in our lives. I've been very helped by a commentary written by, uh, by a Wheaton professor named Karen Jobes, and she describes this in her commentary. She, she acknowledges the fact that God is invisible in the material world that we inhabit. So how, she asks, does one express love for God and have fellowship with him? Consistently, the New Testament speaks of love for God in terms of relationship with his people over and over and over. 
She says, biblically defined, love for others is our appropriate expression of love for God. Therefore, when John uses this amazing description that God's love is perfected in us, John is saying that God's love for us reaches its intended completion or goal when we, in turn, express love for others, completing the reciprocity between God and his people. God's love, because it is limitless, always flows out. God is love in that sense. It always flows out. It, it flows out to you. And the well never runs dry. When, when, that, when that spring empties into you as a stream, there's only one way for it to find its intended purpose, and that is for it to flow through you to others, and in a very special way, to others who are special recipients of God's love, to one another. There's always more to give. People need to see that, and they need to be able to experience it. As we reach out, there are there are initiatives right now at Grace that are aimed at reaching out to others around us, even as the logistics for that are challenging. I think you can anticipate more of those initiatives showing up in the future as well. And, and as we reach out, we need a place for people when they're brought in. We need to have the kind of environment that, that says to them, you are welcome here with the same kind of welcome that God has extended to us in Christ. That, that needs to say in the right way, you matter. You matter to us. You don't have to be, become like us in terms of, in terms of our personalities or, or our natural preferences in order to be gladly welcomed here. We need, we need a place, we need an environment that shows in human relationships God's approval of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. When Jesus said, it is finished, it is completed, it is perfected, God agreed. And, and as people begin to hear about Jesus they need to be able to experience in a human environment what God's acceptance of Jesus' perfect sacrifice does. And they see that in our relationships with one another. We want to be able to offer that to people. We want to be able to offer that picture in increasing measure to them. We do that in, in many, many different ways. We, we have opportunities to practice that right now uh, in a very difficult time, in, in, in a time where it's, it's hard even to have connections with one another that give us that opportunity. And at the same time, uh, we have an opportunity to care for one another in unique hardships uh, that help to extend the love of God, that help to extend the care and comfort of Christ uh, an opportunity to do that 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 is unique and that we want to make sure that we that we in a sense take full advantage of that we care for one another well uh, 
uh, a friend expressed to me this week that in the midst of all these hardships, doctors and nurses feel forgotten. Doctors and nurses are in just a grueling time, and uh, it can especially feel when when people don't care for uh, the the medical implications of their choices. It can feel like you know what we're left out to dry. We're we're trying to help people, and we're we're becoming outnumbered, and we need help from the bro- from the broader community. We we feel forgotten. Doctors and nurses feel forgotten. Other people feel forgotten as well. People who are especially medical, medically fragile probably feel forgotten. Governors probably feel forgotten. People who are in various levels of leadership, who have judgment calls to make, feel like, like people aren't, aren't noticing what life is like for them. They feel demands made on them, and and they don't feel like people recognize what it takes. They feel forgotten. So one of the ways that we can love one another, that we can give ourselves, that we can extend the life of Jesus to one another, is by helping people to feel unforgotten. By in, in a way that mirrors in a very small way what Jesus did by entering into one another's worlds. It, that can be scary. It can be a fearful thing to do. It can be really tempting uh, to just airdrop and to, 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 to drop maybe um, prepackaged expressions, uh, to, to love in word only, uh, to tell people that, well, we... we we hope that you're doing okay. We hope you're staying sane. Uh, please stay healthy. Take care of yourself. Uh, all those things can express uh, genuine care. Uh, none of them necessarily loves uh, in deed and in truth. Um, I saw uh, an article posted this week. Some of you know Ben Bartlett. Ben posted an article, uh, an opinion piece by David Brooks in the New York Times this week that I just found to be a gold mine of wisdom in terms of entering one another's worlds at a time when maybe all of us in some way feel forgotten. The title of the article, if you want to look it up, it's in the New York Times, is Nine Non-Obvious Ways to Have Deeper Conversations. Ways to enter one another's world. To have deeper conversations. I'll just I'll just mention a few of the things that that he lays out. One is to ask what he calls elevating questions. Questions that he he says compel us to see ourselves from a higher vantage. It's it's as if they're the kinds of questions that allow us to to come alongside someone and say, "Hey, let's let's stop for a minute and let's pay attention." To you, I want I want to help you pay attention to you. I want to do that with you, and and so David Brooks recommends questions like this: What problem did you used to have that you now have licked? Where have you made progress? In what ways are you sliding backward? That's a big question for us now. That's a question that requires trust to ask. 
but we, we've had so much of the insulation stripped away, and many of us have seen things in ourselves that we don't like to see as a result of some of the hardships we're facing. So where have you seen those things? What are you learning about yourself during this time? Maybe that you thought you didn't have to learn. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Powerful questions that allow us to come alongside someone and say, Let, let's pay attention to you as you are. He also recommends asking open-ended questions. Of course, the, the, the classic example of the closed-ended question is, how are you? Maybe slightly better would be, did you have a good day? He recommends questions that start with, what was it like? What was that like for you? Amy has had experience of asking that question of people, and it opens the floodgates of people telling the, their story, people that she has never met before, and she can stand there listening to the story of someone she's never met simply because she asked, what was that like for you? And showed with her eyes that she was interested in knowing. What was it like for you? Deeper conversation David Brooks says, deeper conversation builds trust, the oxygen of society, exactly what we're missing right now. It can be scary to enter one another's worlds, to love one another in that way. But Jesus, by entering our world, has already secured our safe passage out. Uh, we, we want to give people a picture of that safe passage. We do that by being the stream that's connected to the spring of God who is love. And we express that by loving one another. Father, we need your help with this. This is who we are and who you've made us to be. And it is not yet automatic for us. So I pray that you, by your Spirit, would implant your word in us and cause it to bear the fruit that expresses itself in your love for us to one another, that the world might look at it and see you as you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.